Take your Bibles out and turn with me to Revelation chapter 4 and 5. We're going to look this morning at a glimpse into heaven. This will be the last message before Christmas in our series on the book of Revelation because we get into chapter 6, the tribulation, and start breaking the seals and blowing the trumpets and pouring out the bowls of wrath and I wasn't going to be pouring out the bowls of wrath over Christmas, okay? So uh, anyway, but we will resume in January. Uh, But uh, take your Bibles and we're going to look at chapters 4 and 5 together and uh, handle it as one pericope, one unit of thought because that is essentially what it is. Uh, You could... uh, Almost, you could just erase the number five, the chapter division, and just uh, a continuous reading of the two chapters together. And we'll spend most of our time today in chapter five, because chapter four actually builds up to the scene and the problem that's going on in chapter five. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word, please? A glimpse into heaven. John says, after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, Around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him Uh, who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. 
And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne the, and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Father, we're so grateful that in these chapters you give us a glimpse into heaven. We are allowed to see a glimpse of what our inheritance is going to be like. We thank you for these sights that we see. And Father, I pray that if there is even one here today who does not know Jesus Christ in a personal way, that you would press upon their hearts what they are going to miss if they do not repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation. May your spirit be at work in their hearts today. And Father, we thank you for the heavenly focus that we see here of God. And it's a reminder to us that as we walk through this life we don't need to focus in on our problems but we need to focus in on the Savior may we do that today I pray in Jesus name Amen now folks when we last opened our Bibles and looked in the book of Revelation our attention was focused in upon the church, the seven churches. But as we come to chapter 4, something remarkable happens. There is a very noticeable change in scenery. Because John is called up into heaven. 
You know, there's an unprecedented fascination these days among both Christians and non-Christians with the afterlife. Books on near-death experiences are likely to be at the very top of the bestsellers list. Many people claim to have visited heaven and then they return to tell us about their experiences. Now the latest offering in this regard is the neurosurgeon. The neurosurgeon who claims to have died, he died of complications related to meningitis. And he claims in his book to have visited heaven and now he's returned to tell us about all the sights and the sounds that he witnessed. He says that everybody makes it to heaven, even atheists. According to him, the only hell there is, uh, and I saw this in a recent interview that he did, the only hell that anybody experiences is a temporary moment in time that we're allowed to have in heaven, a temporary moment of sorrow as to the fact that we either didn't come to have faith in the Lord or we didn't come sooner to have faith in the Lord. And he says that's the only hell that everybody will ever experience, just that temporary moment of sorrow that God will allow you to have in heaven. Then he'll erase that and you'll move on with the glories of heaven. Now folks, whether he knows it or not, he's writing as a false prophet in that regard. His words are the exact opposite of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but in a vote, I'll go with the words of the Lord Jesus. Now in contrast to all the fanciful and bizarre accounts that are portrayed in some of these books today, the Bible on the other hand records the accounts of two people who actually were taken to heaven in visions. In 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul writes of being transported to the first heaven, uh, to the third heaven rather. The first heaven being where the birds fly. The second heaven being where the astronauts go and where the planets go around in their orbits. Poor Pluto, you know, back in 2006. Scientists voted Pluto out of the league of planets and simply assigned it a number instead. Kind of makes me feel like how they treat me in the DMV line. <laughs> and then there's the third heaven. The third heaven is the abode of God. And that's what John is writing about here. Now, as far as the Apostle Paul again in 2 Corinthians 12, he was told that he was forbidden to write about what he saw. Now, the Apostle John is actually told to write about what he witnesses here, and that's what chapters 4 and 5 are all about. And you'll notice as John writes about heaven that his focus is upon God. 
Now what we learn in these two chapters is that unmistakably God is in charge of both heaven and earth. And so we can sit back and relax knowing that history is his story. And he's working things out according uh, to his plan and purposes on his timetable. Now the first thing I want you to notice with me is the sovereignty of God. In verse 1 of of chapter 4, John hears this summons to heaven. He writes, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And so John is given a vision of an open door, and he hears this voice calling him upward. Now let me tell you what some interpreters say is going on here. And I think they make a valid point. I actually agree with them. Though I would use more than simply this text to make the point. But they say what we have here is nothing other than the rapture of the church. Now there's a couple of things that might help to suggest this. First is the sequence of events. John says after this. That is after the instructions given to the churches in the time of the church age. And then there's the silence of the church. The church appears 19 times in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. But did you realize, however, that from chapters 4 all the way through the end of the book, you do not find a single reference to the church? Now folks, wouldn't it be odd... That as tribulation is being poured out upon the earth beginning in chapter 6, that from time to time, God did not allow us to get a little status report about how the body of Christ is doing. After all, that's exactly what we find in the book of Acts. As the narrative of the book of Acts advances on and we see the expanding mission of the church and all the persecution of those early believers, from time to time, the Holy Spirit has Luke push the pause button on his writing and he gives instead a summary of how the church is doing in the middle of all of this. And I would expect the same in the book of Revelation. I mean, to think of all this tribulation as these seals are being broken and these trumpets are being blown and these bowls of wrath are being poured out. There's a crescendo growing. It's like waves crashing on a beach of tribulation that's coming upon the earth. It would be strange to me that God would never tell us anything about the church. Now realize it's an argument of silence, but some say that argues for the fact that we're not here. The church is taken out. Now also from chapters 4 to 19, God is no longer called Father to those on earth. He's referred to as God and Lord and Almighty, but never as the Father, the Heavenly Father of those on the earth. 
And so I think what we have going on here is the same thing we read about in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And then in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede these who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. In both of those passages we have believers being caught up to heaven in the rapture and I think that's one of the things that we are intended to see right here in chapter 4 of Revelation. John hears that summons to heaven. And then secondly I want you to notice he sees the sights of heaven beginning there in verse 2. John sees one seated upon a throne. Now incidentally the word throne is a key word here. It occurs 46 times in the book of Revelation, 14 times in chapter 4 alone. And what we need to see here is that no matter what is happening upon the face of the earth, God is still on his throne and God is still sovereign and in control. Well, folks, how do you go about describing God? I mean, it seems like mere words in and of themselves would not be adequate. And so in verse 3, John uses images of brilliant stones and precious jewels. John sees an emerald rainbow around the throne. Now most rainbows occur after the storm. Now here's the rainbow that occurs before and during the storm that is about to break out on the earth. And I think what it symbolizes is that the saints in heaven are instead enjoying God's peace. Now John sees many creatures around the throne. He sees 24 elders. I think it's a reference to all of God's people. You had 12 tribes in the Old Testament, 12 apostles in the New Testament. And so the 24 here symbolizes all of the saints from both the Old and the New Covenants. Now some have speculated as to whether they could be angels but their description of white garments with golden crowns on their heads fits better with how the saints are always described in the Bible. These are the overcomers who have conquered and overcome and won the victory because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you have the four living creatures. I think it symbolizes all of creation. Scholars say, well, maybe it describes the four Gospels. Others will say it describes the four divine uh, characteristics of Jesus and others that it describes all of creation. And I actually agree with that. Now John also sees a storm about to proceed from the throne. Flashes of lightning symbolizing the coming judgment. 
imminent judgment to those on the earth. So again, while the saints of God are in heaven enjoying peace and security with God, enjoying our heavenly inheritance, lightning is about to proceed from the throne, pouring out judgment that is is about to fall upon the earth. Then I want you to notice beginning in verse 8, we see the song of heaven. There's a great emphasis placed today on working for the Lord and witnessing for the Lord. But I want you to notice that the emphasis in heaven is upon worshiping the Lord. Now to worship means to ascribe worth. Heaven is a place of worship. And so maybe it would be a good idea for some of us to go ahead and get in practice now. Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 that the Father desires those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so in chapter 4 we get a glimpse of the sovereignty of God. And folks, we need to understand that today again, no matter what happens around us, God is on His throne and God is sovereign. Well, the second thing I want you to notice from chapter 5 is the sufficiency of Christ. While chapter 4 focuses us in upon the sovereignty of God seated upon His throne, chapter 5 causes us to think more in terms of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, who He is, what He's done, and what that means for you and me. Now, I want to ask you a question. What dilemmas do you face today? What has your back against a wall? What problems do you face? How big are your problems? What do you do with those problems? Do you lay awake at night wringing your hands and you can't go to sleep for thinking your mind is filled with all of your problems? Do you worry yourself sick to the point you even end up with ulcers? What do you do with your problems? What do you do with your dilemmas? I think chapter 5 is going to have a good word to say to us about that. As I said before, it's unfortunate that there's a chapter break between 4 and 5 because chapter 5 is a continuation of the worship that began back in chapter 4. And as we open up with chapter 5, we see that God is seated upon his throne Uh, there in chapter 4 we move into chapter 5 and look at verse 1 it says then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals and so there's a smooth continuation chapter 4 him who is seated on the throne chapter 5 him who's seated upon the throne but we see a scroll in his hand Again, a picture of the awesomeness of God. But I want you to notice that there is a problem here. The problem has to do with this scroll that no one is worthy to open. Now the word book that your translation may say in verse 1 literally refers to a scroll. Now normally a scroll would be rolled out and it would only be written on one side and then roll back up. But you'll notice this scroll is written on the front and the back symbolizing how packed it is with information and it stages stages along the way it is sealed with a seal. 
Now, what are the contents? Many scholars say that what, what we have here is the title deed to the earth. Along with the title deed to the earth, it's the record of earth's history. Specifically, it's believed that this title deed includes the final years of history. And so, in other words, everything we're going to read about from chapter 6 to the very end of the book is what is contained in this scroll. And I want you to notice that it is a sealed scroll beginning in chapter 6. The seals begin to be broken and the contents are revealed in stages. And so the contents of the scroll are the prophecies of, of the end time events. Now folks, what's the dilemma? What's the problem? The problem here is that there is no one who is found worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll. Now notice it does not say that no one was willing. Throughout history there would be a lot of people who would be willing. On Wednesday nights we're studying the book of Daniel and I think of King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians and what an egomaniac he was. I'm sure he would have delighted at the opportunity to be the one in charge of everything and break the seals and begin unrolling the scroll. But he's not worthy. Then Alexander the Great said to be one of the greatest uh, leaders and conquerors of all time. He led the Greeks to sweep across the earth, conquer kingdom after kingdom. By age 33, he sat down to weep, uh, to weep because there were no other kingdoms to conquer. And he died in a drunken stupor. We think of all the other people throughout history who would have loved to have been the one in charge. But again, the question is not who among men is willing, but rather who among men is worthy. Now notice the threefold search they make. They send out a search party, if you will, in heaven and they look all through heaven for somebody who is worthy. Now think about who's there, all the angels. There's Michael, the archangel, the guardian angel of Israel in the Old Testament. Michael is there, but he's not worthy. There's the angel Gabriel who is sent to announce the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Gabriel's there, but he's not worthy. They search out on earth. Again, no one is worthy, not Enoch. Enoch who had walked so closely with God that one day he walked right into heaven. Somebody said, you know, it's like Enoch and God were taking a walk one day and God said, hey, by the way, Enoch, we're closer to my house than yours. Why don't you just come on in with me? But Enoch was not worthy. And Abraham, the man called in Scripture the friend of God. And the father of those who place their faith in, in God. But Abraham's not worthy. Not Isaiah either who saw that vision of God on his throne in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6. And he cried out, woe is me, I'm undone for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. I, I, I'm done for because my eyes have beheld the king of glory. But Isaiah wasn't worthy. 
Even though he was the prince of the prophets. Mary, the mother of Jesus. I went to a Catholic, a traditional Catholic funeral yesterday. And of course their veneration of Mary. But Mary, the mother of Jesus, she's not worthy. And then there's Peter and Paul and James and John, the sons of thunder. No one on earth who's worthy. Then a a search is made under the earth. All of those who have died, same thing from the beginning of time all the way up to the current. No one could be found who is worthy. Now, folks, imagine this. No man, no principality or power, not even among the angels is worthy. Now, pretend for a moment with me, okay, that you don't know the rest of the chapter. We've got a problem. Because you see, to the one who is worthy to step forward and take this scroll, to that one will also be given the authority to begin unrolling the scroll, breaking the seals, and to be the one who is in charge of executing all of the end time events. But again, no one is worthy. What a stunning revelation of the depravity and the failure of the human race. I think of Billy Sunday, the Billy Graham of his day. Billy Sunday was about to go into a town and preach an evangelistic crusade and he wrote to the mayor and he said, Mayor, I want you to send me the roster of all the people in your city who do not believe in Christ, who are unbelievers and need to be converted. The mayor ended up sending the whole entire town registry. The depravity of man. I mean, think of the arrogance, think of the audacity of that Greek philosopher Protagoras who who said man is the measure of all things. Imagine that. He said man is the center of the universe, what everything is about. It's all focused in on him. That's what Protagoras said. The arrogance in that statement that man is the measure of all things. But what does verse 5 here say? No one is worthy. Folks, what's the Bible tell us in the book of Romans? What have all of us done? What have all of us done? We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And through the works of the law, no one will be justified in God's sight. Paul even goes on later on in the book of Romans to to say that on their own there are none who seek after God. We've all gone astray. We've all turned our own way. Regardless of all the advancements that men have been able to make upon the face of the earth. And I'm grateful for some of those advancements. It's like I tell some of our old timers around here. Y'all keep having all those tests at the hospital. Let them practice on you and get it right. Time I'm your age, I hope I can just pop a pill and be well. I'm glad about these advancements, but still, nonetheless, you see that man is an utter failure 
at his biggest problems. His biggest problems are spiritual in nature. And the best that mankind has to offer comes up short every time. And so the result of this is John weeps. And the word used here in the Greek text for his crying is literally loud sobbing. Because it appears to John that the situation now is one of despair. It must have seemed as though the curse of God on the human race would never be lifted. So is paradise going to be lost forever? Was the cross impotent after all to save mankind from God's wrath? In the end, is evil going to win out over good? Is death going to end up uh, winning over life? And so who can blame John for weeping? You ever feel helpless in light of your problems? Think of those who will go to bed tonight despairing over their problems because they have no idea that there's a God who loves them and has won the victory for them. Thank God here there's a message to report. Begin reading with me in verse 5. I want you to see not only the problem but the person. Verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who's conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. The elder says to John, John, stop weeping. Look to the person, Jesus. John, stop looking simply at the problem. Look to the one who is worthy. Folks, our problems are minute compared to what John faced in this vision because it truly appeared to John that the consummation of the plan of redemption was in jeopardy and all of God's promises were about to come crashing at John's feet. John must have felt like the psalmist who said, Surely my faith has been in vain. But you know what the issue was with John? He saw the problem without seeing the person. He saw the problems and focused in on the problems without seeing Jesus. Are you ever guilty of that? Do you ever get up in the morning and you go about that day and and you're fretting about some kind of problem you have and you focus in all day long on your problem and you never see Jesus? You've been there. We've all been there. What do we need to do? We need to focus in on Jesus. Now folks, I'm not here to suggest that he's just going to wipe out all of our problems and take them all away. In fact, he, he brings some of our problems on us to discipline us and to teach us dependency upon him. The Apostle Paul wrote about having a thorn in the flesh. 
In 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about that thorn in the flesh. And the word he uses, the thorn in the flesh, doesn't refer to a little splinter, but a big old stake. And he said, it's like a stake has been driven down in my flesh. And he asked God three times, take it away. And God said, no. And finally God said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. He learned dependency on God through that thorn in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 1 says we have some of our problems so we'll learn the comfort of God. So we'll go through that time of difficulty, come out the other side and then later on in our Christian life when we see a fellow, uh, fellow brother or sister in Christ going through that same valley, we're able to come alongside of them and comfort them with the comfort that we ourselves ha- have obtained from God. So God oftentimes has a, pro, a, a purpose in our problems. I'm not saying he's going to simply take them all away. But what I am saying, ladies and gentlemen, as the backdrop to all of our difficulties in life, all of our valleys in life, the backdrop that we need to see is the Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul says in Romans 8, What then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? If God can take care of the biggest problems in the universe, He can take care of your problems and my problems. You and I can know that if He created everything, if He paid the price for our redemption, if He created people so that no two are alike, if He hung the stars in their courses, if He can arrange the whole plan of redemption and carry it out to perfect completion, then He can handle any problem I have. And when the elder has John to focus in on Jesus, notice the descriptions given of here. When he says, weep no more in verse 5, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Folks, what's the image you get of a lion? It's power and strength and majesty, right? A lion, the king of the jungle. I've mentioned to you before back when the men's group, when we were over in South Africa back in the spring on that mission project, one of the activities we did one day when we had some free time was go into Johannesburg and drive through the Lion Park. And in the Lion Park, they have the road graded out so that the so the dirt road is actually probably two or three feet below. The, the grass next to you. And so as you drive through the lion park and the lions are up there at grass level, I mean, it's like they're looking right in the, the wind of the vehicle at you. And, and, and they told us, they said, now don't you dare. You're going to want to roll down a window or get out and take a snapshot of one of them. They said a lion can cover 30 feet in one second. And so you think you're going to open your door and stand out by the vehicle and take a snapshot of a lion and get back in before he gets you? You're not going to be able to make it. He'll get you. One of them was laying down asleep right at the car window. Had his back towards us, back of his head, big old mane. I said to Robbie Jones, Robbie, if you'll roll down your window and and clip his mane and give me some of his mane, I'll give you a hundred bucks. He didn't take me up on it. 
Don't you like watching some of these wildlife programs? They'll be out on the safari and they'll be filming the elephants or the migration of the wildebeest or something of that nature. And, and they'll make a kill and who always shows up on the scene? These hyenas. Like a bunch of little demons or something. I hate seeing them things. I, I was watching one one day on the, on the National Ge Geographic Channel and, and uh, uh, you know, here are the female lions and he, those packs of hyenas, they're even coming in and intimidating them and running them off and stealing the prey. And all of a sudden, these big, majestic male lions came running in. Boy, those hyenas, they bolted. They were scared to death. They called them the hyena killers, those male lions. And they chased that whole pack of hyenas down. And they would run up on them as the hyenas were running away. And they would snap one snap into their backbone and just, just crush their backbone. The hyena would fall. It just collapsed, paralyzed, and die right there. And the lion would run on and get the next one. Man, I was up on my seat cheering for those lions. <laughs> A lion of the tribe of Judah. Not only a lion of the tribe of Judah, but he's also described as the root of David. Boy, now that's a loaded phrase. Because in the Old Testament they had many kings, but none like David. David was a man after God's own heart. And in the Old Testament prophecies about the future millennial reign, it would describe Jesus as being a son of David according to his human line. Son of David. But not only is he the son of David, but I want you to notice how he's described here the root of David. Whoa, wait a minute. David was before Jesus on the, on the timeline, right? Oh, no. The pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus is not just the son of David, but the root of David. In other words, he's eternal God. Verse 5, he's the overcomer. He's the one who's conquered. It's in, the, it's in the present tense in the Greek, which means he has conquered and there's ongoing, never-ending benefits, results from him conquering. Verse 6, the lamb, the lamb is standing, although it's been slain in the Old Testament. You, when you sinned, you take a lamb to the priest, the priest would kill it. And so the sinner was to see that his sin had cost something its life. Its life's blood was poured out. John the Baptist saw Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, John the Baptist was saying to his disciples, Jesus is the fulfillment of all those Old Testament sacrifices. He's the one that they pointed to. But I want you to notice, even though Jesus was like a lamb that's been slain, he wasn't dead. He's standing. How can that be? Because Christ was buried, he died on the cross, he was buried, but what happened on the third day? He's raised to life. 
So even though he's been slain, he's standing. And the Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for us. Folks, we're never alone in the midst of our problems. In verse 6, John's given this image of his omnipresence, his omniscience. There in verse 6, that the seven horns, the all power, and the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. You say, seven spirits of God? I thought there was just one Holy Spirit. Well, Isaiah 11.2 talks about the sevenfold attributes of the Holy Spirit. And here Jesus is all-powerful and all-knowing. It kind of reminds me of David in Psalm 139. When David asked that question, where can I go from God's presence? I mean, if I wanted to get away from God's presence, where could I, where, where could I go? David said, if, if I ascend up into heaven, can I get away? No, he's there. If I go into the depths of Sheol, can I get away from him there? No, he's there. If I, if I uh, take the wings uh, of the dawn, go east or... Or all the way to where the sunset west? Can I, can I get away from God's presence? And his conclusion is no. And David said, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I can't even conceive of it. Folks, what we have here is a picture of Jesus. All-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful. He's the answer. Now I want you to notice something here. Notice that Jesus Christ was there the whole time. John just didn't see him. He was there all the time. All the time that John was weeping. All the time that John was focusing in on this dilemma, this problem. Jesus was there. He just needed to have his eyes open. Do you need to have your eyes opened? He's there. Jesus steps forward and takes the scroll out of the hand of him seated upon the throne. And I want you to notice what does not happen. Nobody complains. Nobody says you cannot do that. The one on the throne surrenders up the scroll he takes the scroll out of his hand how's he able to do that because he's king of kings and lord of lords everything is rightfully his amen, amen. and then I want you to notice what happens next they break forth in praise so we go from the problem to the person to the praise. And everybody joins in, myriads of myriads, thousands upon thousands, and we're told that they sing a new song. Don't you just love some of those old songs of our faith? The old rugged cross. Victory in Jesus. Great is thy faithfulness. How wonderful those old songs are. But ladies and gentlemen, we're also told here to sing new songs to the Lord. They sing a new song to the Lord. 
A song of praise for the purpose and the future that He's given to us. So what problems do you face? You need to see that Jesus is the great I Am. He's the living water, the bread of life, the light of the world, the good shepherd, the true vine, the resurrection and the life. He's our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. He's all sufficient. Worthy is the Lamb. The sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Folks, as we go through life, we're going to be faced with problems. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. He said, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. All the saints of old faced tribulation. Just read Hebrews 11 sometime. The great chapter of faith, the hall of faith. And all the difficulties they went through. But what Revelation 4 and 5 is inviting us to do. To keep our eyes on the sovereignty of God. And the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. The world is not spinning out of control. Life itself is not spinning out of control. He's still the shepherd. He's still the savior. And he's still on his throne. Would you bow in prayer with me please? Do you want to know this God who is sovereign over all of world history? Wouldn't you like to know his son Jesus who's sufficient for all of your problems? Beginning with your sin problem. He can forgive you. In fact, only He can forgive you because He's the one who died on the cross for your salvation. Come to Him. There's no sense in continuing through life on your own, trying to live your life your way, go your way, and solve your problems in your strength and wisdom. Ultimately, that will fail. You need Christ. Just like we saw at the end of chapter 3, the Bible said when, when we talked about the church at Laodicea, he was standing there at the door of the church knocking, desiring to come in. Is he knocking on your heart's door? Jesus said, those who come to me, I will in no way cast them out. Maybe this morning in a public way for the first time in your life you need to come forward and say, Pastor, I need to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You have nothing to gain by putting off that decision and potentially everything to lose. Why would you gamble with your eternity? Come to Christ. Also, do you look at all your problems without seeing Jesus? Boy, that's a tendency. And when we do that, we despair. Maybe you need to come to this altar this morning and do what 1 Peter chapter 5 says to do. Cast all your care upon Him because He cares for you. What problems you have this morning? You have a problem at work, a problem with the relationship, 
marriage problem, problem with the child, problem with finances? What kind of problem do you, what are you going through in life that, that you're filled with anxiety and you need God's wisdom and God's direction? Lay that at his feet this morning. Perhaps this morning you need God's direction and wisdom for your life. He's all-seeing and all-knowing. You don't know the future. He does. Wouldn't it be the wise thing to do? To put Him in the driver's seat. To say, Lord, I want your direction for my life. Your counsel. Your wisdom. Father, I pray that you would move in the hearts of your people. Be gracious, be merciful. God, may your Holy Spirit be at work according to our deepest needs. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.